James chapter 1. Today I want to talk to you about temptation. If I had a mousetrap with me, I almost brought one, but I, I was afraid I was going to snap my finger in it. But if I had a mousetrap here, a mousetrap would be a great visual lesson on how temptation works. All of us at one time or another, most of us at one time or another, have had the dubious challenge of getting a mouse. And you understand there's nothing worse. My wife is terrified of mice. Her worst nightmare are mice. Seriously, she panics. Uh, we lived at a house a few years back, and I came in from uh, being at the office, and I walked in the door, and there, I, there was my wife. Never seen her this way. She had big, it was, it was the summertime, she had big rubber boots on up to here. She had a broom in her hand like this, and she was squatting on top of our table like this, tears of mascara running down her face, panic on her eyes, and I walked in, I said, "Hun, are you okay? There's a mouse in the house. And she, she, she was out of her mind. And she basically told me she couldn't stay in the house. She'd have to give a hotel room unless I caught the mouse that night. I tried to reason with her and say, honey, well, that's going to be impossible. I'm never going to catch it. No, no, I can't stay. You don't understand. I'll go crazy. I thought, okay, we got a problem here. So much to my delight, I think God knew he had, to, he had to make the mouse appear. So sure enough, the mouse appeared. And I chased that mouse to the house. I cornered it in the bathroom. And um, I became the brave warrior that slaughtered the mighty beast. And I, I, I killed that mouse. But mousetraps are... are, are Mousetraps are a little bit trickier. Normally, we don't catch mice that way. Normally, what we do is we set a trap, and you, you, you put something that will allure the mouse to it, right? Cheese or peanut butter works really well. And you put it on there because what happens with the mouse is the mouse comes out, and he's enticed by the smell. He's enticed by the lure of it. And as the, mice, as the mouse goes to that trap, unbeknownst to him, his life is about to end. But he goes to the trap lured by the, the smell of that peanut butter or that cheese. And when he touches that, boom, it snaps. He's done. He's trapped. Much in the same way, temptation is that way in our lives. Little do we know, but every single one of us this week has been lured, enticed, and seduced in one way or another by temptations coming against us. There's not a person in this auditorium that was not tempted this week. Not one. Now, your temptation may be different than her temptation. And his temptation may be different than his temptation. Uh, someone says, you know, uh, I, you know, I can be around people drinking and at a party and snorting lines of cocaine. It doesn't tempt me at all. If that's not your background, it's not your temptation. It doesn't touch you at all. 
But yet at the other hand, uh, maybe at your job, trying to climb the ladder of success, you'll be tempted to cheat on your timesheet or, or, or produce false reports because you're trying to get ahead and that's your ambition or, or greed may be your temptation. And, and so one person's temptation is not another person's temptation, but every single one of us have been tempted this week either by materialism, by anger, by envy, hold on, by pride, by lust, the weather's getting nice, the weather gets nice, the skirts get shorter, the clothes come off, uh, tempted by hundreds of different of temptations that come our way. And every person every day in many ways is tempted. And the question is, if we're going to overcome our temptation and not give in to the mousetrap that eventually catches us and chops off our head spiritually, how are we going to resist temptation? How are we going to overcome temptation? Well, James is talking to a group of people that are struggling with overcoming temptation and have a wrong view of temptation. If you read in James, it says, verse 13, when tempted... No one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. If you're taking notes this morning, I want you to write this down. I want to talk to you about really overcoming temptation by understanding temptation. And the first point I want you to write down is this. The source of your temptation can never be God, so stop blaming and take responsibility. In my observation, there are three people that we tend to blame for our temptation and sin. We tend to blame God sometimes because we ask, why have you put my, me in this situation? We tend to blame the devil. We're all familiar with that expression, the devil made me do it. And we tend to blame other people. If you wouldn't have pushed my buttons, I wouldn't have sworn at you. If you would be better with the money, then I wouldn't have to be such a tightwad. If you, if you would have loved me more, I wouldn't be lusting so much. Whatever your excuse may be. It reminds me of the couple that was having a really tight budget, and the, one, the wife was about to go shopping for a dress that she needed, and the husband told her, hey, you can go, but promise me, promise me that you'll stay under a certain amount of money. And he made her swear up and down that she would. She said she would. She went out. She was shopping for a couple hours, came back, said, honey, you're going to love the dress that I bought. His first words, yeah, yeah, yeah. How much did it cost? And when she told him the price, his jaw dropped. He said, Unbelievable. I mean, we talked about this before you went out. You promised me that you wouldn't go over budget, and you've gone way over budget. How could you do this to me? He said, why didn't you say, get thee behind me, Satan? And she said, I did. And he said, it looked great from back there, too. You see, I think we tend to blame the devil more, give him more 
credit than he really deserves. Because what it tells us in this passage, I want you to see this well. It says, when tempted, not if tempted, because all of us will be tempted. Some of you, most of you were already tempted this morning in some way or another, even on the way to church. No one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Now, there's a difference between testing and tempting. Last week, we talked about trials and testing. Testing has to do with proving your character and your quality. It it, it tests, it proves what character you have, what you're made of, what is your maturity. It's an external test of who you are. Temptation has to do with an internal enticing, an internal seducing to do something that is wrong or evil. Webster defines it this way. Uh, He says that uh, temptation is the act of enticement to do wrong by the promise or pleasure of gain. So testing and tempting are different because testing tries us, but temptation pulls us to do something that's wrong. God may test you, but God will never tempt you with evil. Are we clear on that? So if you're at lunch break downtown and a woman walks by with a mini skirt and you're looking at her, don't say, oh God, why'd you send her past me? No, that wasn't God. God didn't do that. God's not out there trying to bait you into doing evil. God is not out there trying to trick you into failing or messing up. God's not, God's not baiting you to do something, and then when you fall, God doesn't say, aha, I got another one. That's not the way God works. He's not trying to seduce you to do wrong. He's not trying, he may test your character, he may allow you to go through a trial that is difficult, but he'll never try to seduce you to do wrong. Why? First of all, because God cannot be tempted with evil. It says right there, God cannot be tempted by evil. Now, now can you try to tempt him? Yes, but it's not a temptation if you're not struggling with it. Are you hearing me? You can try to tempt God, but if you don't struggle with it, it's really not a temptation. And God cannot be tempted by evil because God is perfect. He's holy. He has no desire or inclination towards evil. He's good, perfect, and no evil seduces him. It doesn't draw him. It doesn't tempt him. It doesn't make him want to go there. God cannot be tempted by evil. So therefore, if God cannot be tempted by evil, God never uses evil to try to tempt someone else. In the Greek, it says... It uses the word inexperienced. Literally, it says that God is inexperienced in evil. I love that. He's inexperienced in evil. He has no experience in evil. That's not in his character, not in his nature. So God never uses it to get you or me to try to fall away. Once in a while, I'll talk to people that are angry against God. And they feel like God somehow led them 
to the place that they're at, that God somehow tempted them. They, they kind of had this idea, well, God let me go through a trial and a temptation, and in the, in the trial I was tempted, and in the temptation I gave in to sin, and since God allowed it, it must be God's fault, and it must be God that made this happen to me, so I'm angry at God. That's faulty thinking, because that wasn't God. God had nothing to do with that. God is not wanting you to fail. God is cheering you to succeed. God is wanting you to make it. God is desiring that you would live holy. He's not tempting you to evil. But since the beginning, there's been a propensity to blame, to shift. Uh, Do you remember what happened in the Garden of Eden when God placed man and woman in this beautiful, utopia-like environment where they had everything that they needed. They had the provision and the food and the fellowship with God. And when they sinned against God, God said to Adam, Adam, why did you do it? And Adam said to God, the woman. The woman you gave me. Now, do you notice he didn't just say it was the woman. He said, it was the woman you gave me, almost implying, hey, God, it's your fault. I mean, I was doing pretty good without the woman. (laughs) I mean, I never sinned before the woman. I can just hear Adam talking, hey, God, you know, before she was around, I was doing pretty good. You and I were fellowshipping. Yeah, life wasn't all, not as fun as having the woman around, but, you know, we were doing pretty good. And then the woman, you, I don't know what you did. I'm not sure how you made her that way, but you gave me this, and because you gave it to, you gave her to me, now I fell. Almost this, this accusation implying that God was at fault in his fall. The woman, when She was asked, well, why, Eve, what did you do? The woman said, the serpent. So who created the serpent? Well, God created the serpent. Who created the woman? Well, God created the woman. Almost the implication was, it's not my fault. Adam was saying, it's your fault, God, and it's the woman's fault. And the woman was saying, the devil made me do it. Since the very beginning, we've had this propensity to shift blame and not take responsibility for the sin that we commit, for the uh, falling off track and not following through on God, we do not take responsibility. And unless you take responsibility for your own sin, you will never have victory over sin because victims never overcome. Let me say that again. Victims never overcome because a victim thinks they have no power. It's everybody else's fault. Until you say, it's my fault. I made the choice. It's my responsibility. Then you will never have victory. Secondly, by the way, I love what Proverbs uh, 19.3 says. It says, a man's own folly or foolishness ruins his life, yet his heart rages against the Lord. It's our own decisions that mess up our life, and then we raise our fist at God and say, God, what are you doing? Secondly, write this down. The real pool of our temptation are misguided desires. 
So you need to learn to redirect your longings. Verse 14 says, God isn't the one that, verse 13 says, God is not the one that tempts you, for he can't be tempted with evil. So if you ask yourself, well, where does temptation come from? Where is the source of our temptation? Is it an evil spirit? Is it another person? Is it hell? Where is the source that leads us to experience temptation? Verse 13 answers that. When, temp- when tempted, no one should say it's God tempting me because God can't be tempted with evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But here, verse 14. But each one is tempted when? By his own evil desire, he's dragged away and enticed. Let me tell you, your worst enemy is yourself. Your temptation comes mainly from within. Now, other people can stir it up. Let me tell you, if you're angry, all you have to do is drive behind a bad driver, and then suddenly you're honking the horn. What are you doing and exploding? You can blame it on the other driver, but listen, all the other driver did was stir up your anger. Your anger was already there. That other driver didn't make you angry. Your anger came from inside. They just stirred it up. Now, you can have an affair at work and blame it on that lady that dressed in low-cut, seductive, and, and was after you, and she was on you from the very beginning. But listen, she can stir up the lust, but, but, but your lust is already there. She doesn't make you fall. You, you already have a heart of lust that she just stirs up inside of you. She, doesn't, she didn't make you go there. You already had it inside of you. Hello? Hey, your neighbor that got a new car, he didn't make you greedy. You already had greed. Now you're just looking at his car, looking at your piece of junk and saying, hey, what's wrong with this picture? I go to church, tithe, read the Bible. He's got that car. I got this car. I got a Jesus bumper sticker on. I'm going to take my Jesus bumper sticker off and see if I can get a car like that. Listen, he didn't make you greedy. You had greed already. He just stirred up your greed. Hey, your kids don't make you angry. You're already angry inside. They just act up and boom, you explode, want to control them, shout and scream. And you say, see what you did to me, kids? Listen, they didn't make you angry. You were angry to begin with. They just stirred it up. Don't blame it on them. So listen, what, what he's telling us is this. What he's telling us is that The source of your temptation lies within your heart, in your soul. It's called desire. And now notice what he says. It says that, but each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he's dragged away and enticed. Dragged away from what? Dragged away from God's plan and God's purpose. Seduced and enticed by what? By that promise that this is going to be good for you and better for you than what God can offer you. Now, let me tell you this. Desire is not bad. We're all born with desire. God gives us desire. You were born with a desire to be loved. You were born with a desire to eat. You were born with a desire to be held. You were born with a desire 
uh, to succeed. You were born with a desire to sleep, and you were born, when you reach a certain age and puberty kicks in, you were born with sexual drive or sexual desire. None of those desires are bad. All of those are healthy. All of those are good. All of those are of God. When someone has a desire to eat, that's a good desire. Babies are born, immediately they feel a hunger pain, they want to eat, they don't have to be taught to eat, they naturally, instinctively know that they want food. A young boy reaches the age of puberty, he's 15, 14, 15, 16 years old, you don't have to teach him to notice girls at that age. Automatically, instinctively, he goes from girls have cooties to now, hey, girls are in the room. And... Um, Suddenly, there's an attraction there. It's instinctive. It's natural. It's built in. He's born with that. It is of God. It's normal. It's natural. However, any desire that we try to fulfill in an illegitimate way becomes an evil desire. I have a desire for food, but when food becomes my God and I eat and I eat and I eat, it becomes gluttony, and so therefore, it's an evil desire. I have a desire to sleep. Sleep is good, but if I oversleep and that's what I want to do, it turns into laziness and therefore it becomes an evil desire. I have a desire for, I have a desire to be loved, to belong. But if in my loving and belonging, I'm a married person that looks for loving and belonging in the arms of a, another married woman, then my desire to belong is good, but it's an evil desire when I look outside of God's plan to try to fulfill it. I have sexual desire. That's good. That's of God. Listen, if you're a young person here, sometimes we hear the church say, bad, bad, don't, don't, no, no, evil, evil. And, and you have young people that feel like, hey, I must be evil because I have this attraction towards people of the opposite sex. Maybe there's something wrong with me. No, that's normal. It's good. It's healthy. It's called a sexual drive. The fact that young men are attracted to young women, the fact that young women are attracted to young men, that's normal. That, that's a normal thing there's a, that God has built you that way. However, that's a healthy normal drive, but it's when you seek to fulfill it in an illegitimate way that it becomes an evil, an, an evil desire. Uh, in other words, it's not the desire itself, it's how we go about meeting that desire that makes it evil. Are you tracking with me? I want to be happy. Is there anything wrong with wanting to be happy and fulfilled? Not at all, but if my way to happiness and fulfillment is to a line of cocaine on the weekends, then there's a problem there because my desire for fulfillment and happiness is good, but the way I go about doing it is wrong. And so it becomes an evil desire. And oftentimes, this is how temptation works. The word sin literally means to miss the mark. God has a plan for your life. God has a purpose for your life. When you stay on purpose with his plan, you're hitting right in the middle. What sin does is it tries, you, it tries to make you miss God's mark for your life. So therefore, sin means to miss the mark. What James says to us is this. He says, each of us are tempted when those desires inside of us that we have become evil desires 
And those evil desires drag us away from God's purpose and God's plan, and they seduce us into another purpose, into another plan. Listen, if you're single here today, you may not want to hear this, but this is God's plan. Listen, God's plan. You are single whether you're 50 years old or whether you're 21 years old. God's plan is that as long as you're single, that you remain sexually celibate or chaste in your singleness. You say, well, pastor, I got these urges, I got these desires, I got these, you know, that's part of self-control. It's part of learning to be chaste. It's about learning, you're gonna have desires all over your life, but, but it's part of learning to put the reins on and channel those desires in the right way. And the Bible says, hey, if, you, if it's better to marry than to burn, it's not talking about burning in hell either. It's better to marry than to, to eventually to get married than to constantly struggle and struggle with lust and constantly, not, some people are called to be married. They should be married. That's part of the process there. Um, the Bible is clear about that. that. That is God's plan. As long as you're single, God's plan for you is that you would remain chaste in your singleness. It may be difficult. It may be challenging, but it's God's plan. When you go out of that plan, you are basically saying to God, God, I know it's your plan, but either it's hard or I think my way is better or I think that ultimately I can't trust you. I think ultimately I'll be happier if I do it my way other than your way. Are you, are you, are you hearing me? And so in essence, we say, I know that's what you want, God, but I'm going to do another thing because I don't think I can trust your plan. And that's what scripture tells us is that we're dragged away from God's plan and enticed into another plan. He uses actually fishing language for this, bait language. We're dragged away and enticed by the bait. When I was a, a, a youngster, um, I had a friend of mine that taught me how to, f how to fish for frogs. Okay, and then we would fish these frogs, and then he would actually take them to his mother, and his mother would actually cook the frogs and eat the frog legs. It's a delicatessen. A little chewy, but a delicatessen. Now, he had an interesting way of fishing for frogs, and he taught me this. He would get a fishing pole, and we'd get a little flower on the way down to the pond, colorful flower, he would put it on the, on the hook of the fishing pole, the line, and we'd go down to the pond, and he would take his fishing pole, and he would look at the frogs out there uh, chirping, and he would put the pole above them and kind of let it swing around where they were at, and then he would just kind of reel it in, and the frogs were enticed. They looked at the color they looked at the size of the flower, and in their mind, they thought it was an insect. And so you could see the frog stop chirping, kind of looking at this. Hey, who's going to get this one? And then within a little, it always took a little bit of time, but suddenly you'd see one of them sort of stick their tongue out and swallow that, that flower with that hook on. And much to the surprise of the frog, 
suddenly when they had it in its mouth, they were hooked. And you would just reel them out, and there that frog would come out with a hook in its mouth. Little did they know that once they were enticed to the bait, that they would be hooked. And then this fellow would take it to his mom's house, and she would cook up some frog legs. Sin is that way. It entices you. You look at it, and you think, maybe if I had this, ooh, life would be good. It would be easier this way. It would be better that way. It entices you. You look at it. You look around. Is this a trap? No. You get deceived into it. And then when you get it, what you don't realize is that there's a hook involved in this. And once you are enticed in temptation to sin, then there's a hook. And even though you try to get out, now you can't get out of it because you are hooked on it. Leads me to my third point. Write this down. Temptation, like childbirth, has a gestation period that gives birth to the death effect. So learn to abort the process early. Verse 15 says, then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Now James changes the imagery to the imagery of a pregnant woman. The imagery of birth. It says sin, think of sin as a person. Sin starts in the head, but then one day sin is conceived. Now, it starts with desire. Now, when you have a desire, you haven't sinned. If you have a desire here to be loved, that's not sin. If you have a desire to be, to be satisfied, that's not sin. If you have a desire to succeed, th- there's no sin in that. If you have a desire to do well in your exam, that's not sin. If you have a desire to have a healthy sexual life, that's not sin. There's no sin in that, that you have a healthy desire for something. So, So that's not sin. But then suddenly, if your desire is to succeed so that you can get a good job and you're in college right now and you have these tests coming up and you really want to do well, the desire to succeed is not bad. But when you start entertaining the thought of I'm really bad at chemistry, but I know a friend that really knows how to cheat pretty well. I mean, most of the students do it, don't they? I mean, I'm sort of at a disadvantage if I don't because they grade on a curve. And if everybody's cheating but me, then, hey, I'm sort of left behind. I'm not going to hurt anybody. I'm not killing anybody. I mean, it's just, if I were better at chemistry, if God would have given me a mind for chemistry, I wouldn't have to do this. If I had money to have a tutor, I wouldn't have to do this, but I'm left with no other options. So in my mind, I think I'm going to cheat. Oh, okay. It's gone from desire, which is not bad, to evil desire. Now, sin has conceived. You say, well, I haven't even cheated yet, but you know you can sin without ever doing an act, but once you said yes in your mind, you've already crossed a line. Oh, no, let me say that again. 
Once you've said yes in your mind, sin has conceived even though it hasn't been born. Before we ever act it out, we usually think it. Before someone ever kills someone, they think murder. Before someone ever cheats, they think, how am I going to do this? Before someone ever has an affair, they think, okay, I'm going to go down this route. So before they've ever actually gone down that road, they conceive it in their mind, and so it's already pregnant within you. The moment you say, yes, I'm going to do it, the moment you agree to do it in your mind, you've already crossed the line, even though you haven't fulfilled it, even though no one can see it, you've already gone there in your mind. Now you're just waiting for the opportunity. Are you following with me? I want you to understand this. If I walk into a locker room and someone's wallet is there, and I see a wallet, I say, oh, someone left their wallet. Let me see. I pick it up. There's $1,000 in cash there. It crosses my mind. Whoa, $1,000. A wallet. Well, they missed 500 Okay, I have a decision to make. It may flash through your mind. Hey, you could take this as an easy $1,000. Have I sinned because it flashed through my mind? Oh, no. That's temptation. But I haven't sinned. I'm just being tempted. But if in my mind I say, I'm going to take it, and I put my hand in the wallet to take it already, now have I sinned? Oh, yes, I've sinned already because I've chosen to do it. Now, if I write about the time I'm going to take the money, someone walks in the locker room and I say, I'm just straightening out the bills. Look, I found a wallet. Then I don't have an opportunity to actually commit the crime, but I've already committed it in my mind. So I've already crossed the line in my mind. That's why Jesus said, if a man looks at a woman... To lust after her, he's already committed adultery in his heart, even though he may not have committed physical adultery, he's already committed mental adultery. Why? Because you've crossed the line in your mind already, even though you may not have crossed the line physically, you've already crossed the line in your mind. And if you say in your heart, I hate that person, I want to kill that person, you may not have physical opportunity to kill that person, but you've already crossed the line of hatred because in your heart you hate already. So sin is conceived, and ultimately sin, as it grows, as the gestation of sin grows, then ultimately it gives birth to sin. Because ultimately, if it conceives in your heart, you will play it out physically, and it'll give birth to sin. And then sin, as it starts to grow up in your life, because you know when we give birth to it, it doesn't go away. Well, let me say that. It hangs out. It wants you to feed it. It wants a crib in your house. It wants its own room in your life with a little decoration. When it whines, it wants you to pay attention to it. Why? You've given birth to sin. Now you got a room called your sin room in your life. All people don't know it. You can come to church and kind of hide it. People don't know you gave birth to it, but it's there. It whines, you pay attention. It demands of you. You cuddle it. You feed it. It grows. And when it's small, it's kind of cute and manageable. 
But the bigger it grows, the more it demands. Now it needs more to feed it. And now it wants a bigger room. And now it gets to the point, boy, that it's as big as you are and you can't handle it. Now it controls you. You don't control it. Now it makes demands of your life. Now you feel like I got a monster in my house. I'm a slave to the monster that lives in my house. Why? Because you gave birth to it and you nurtured it and you let it grow. And now you feel like your life is dominated by something that you gave birth to. And that's what the Bible says. You give birth to sin and sin gives birth to death. It's the death effect. And suddenly it starts killing your relationships and it starts killing your walk with God and it starts eating up your checkbook and it starts, uh, uh, it starts corroding your conscience and it starts demanding of your time. And before you know it, you wake up and you say, how did I get to this point in my life? How many of you know what I'm talking about? You say, but I'm a believer. Oh, yeah, you can be a believer and still experience the death effect in your life. The good news about this is that sin can be aborted at any time. Even, if, even after it's conceived, it can be terminated. But most of us allow it to grow and grow and grow. You can, peel the, you can pull the plug through repentance and confession pretty much at any time. You can turn at any time. You can choose God's way at any time. You can go back and say, God, I'm out of your plan. I want to choose your plan, your way at any time. That's the beauty of it. But the longer you let the process go, the harder it becomes to end. It's like an affair. The longer it goes, the more intertwined two lives become. And when you go to cut it, when you go to end it, it, it's complicated, it's sticky, it's messy. There's a lot involved there. And so the earlier you terminate it, the quicker you deal with sin, the less it gets sticky in your life, the greater power you have to go forward. Listen, if we really understood the garbage and the death effect in our life, we would never choose sin. If we really understood the garbage that we are participating in and what it does to our life, we would never go there. It's like the, the, the high school class of girls that kept writing in lipstick in the, uh, in the high school girls' washroom. And they kept saying, stop doing that. Made an announcement, don't do it. But they kept going into the world's washroom, and there they were, all these graffiti with lipstick on the mirror. And so the principal had a great idea. He brought all the girls, all the high school girls of one class that were doing this into the washroom, and he said, girls, we've told you a hundred times, stop writing on the mirror with your lipstick. Because look, he pointed to the janitor. He's got to clean it every time. Show him how you clean it. So the janitor went over, got one of these, uh, one of these uh, sponges on the end of, uh, end of a stick. He dunked it in the toilet, and then he cleaned off the mirror with the water from the toilet. They never had a problem with the girls using their lipstick on the mirror again. 
You see, spiritually, spiritually, you keep riding on the bathroom wall thinking that it's okay. You really don't know what you're putting into your system. You don't know the garbage that you're partaking in. You don't know the spiritual bacteria that you're bringing into your body and into your system. You think that it's some minor little infraction without understanding that you're opening a mega door to defeat in your life and uh, spiritual bacteria and garbage and gook in your life. That's why God is so big on holiness and why God is so so convinced and so strong about following his plan. Lastly, verse 16. The strength of temptation is rooted in the deception of the soul. So trust the goodness of God fully. Now, in this last point, and I'm ending with this, I'm about to give you, oh, I wish I could preach this well. I'm about to give you what is the greatest deterrent to temptation that you'll ever experience. Some of you, you'll be shocked at the answer I give you because you'll never even probably list it as the greatest deterrent to temptation in your life, but it's powerful. Temptation, by the way, always comes packaged in a way that we desire it. Always comes packaged well. It's when you open the package and discover what's really in it that ultimately deceives us. The root of your temptation is deception. You sin because you're deceived. If you really understood what it was going to do to your life, you would never do it. We fall because we buy into the lie. That's why he says, do not be deceived. What are we deceived about? Well, we buy into the lie that God's way is ultimately not the best. I know what God says, but it's really hard. This is easier. Feels better. I think it makes sense to me. We buy into the lie that God cannot really be trusted with my life. We buy into the lie that God is not truly watching out for my best interests. We buy into the lie that somehow what we're doing is okay, and somehow what we're doing is ultimately not that bad, and somehow what we're doing is going to make us happy. We buy into that lie. We deceive ourselves. Now listen to me well. Here's what James says. Don't be deceived. Listen, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. The key to saying no to temptation. Listen, the key to saying no to temptation is found in this passage. When you finally understand and grasp the goodness of God, that God's way is best, that God's way is good, that God's way ultimately gives you the greatest fulfillment, that if you truly wanna be happy, God's way ultimately is the way to happiness. 
Truly, it is God's way better than any other way. Listen, I think Titus chapter 2, verse 11 and 12 says it the best. It says, for the grace of God. What is grace? Favor of God, goodness of God. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no. You've heard of the just say no campaign? What teaches you to say no? How many of you wish at times you could just say no to the thing that tempts you the most? You say, if I could just say no. But, but, but I, I try to be strong, but then I give in. I just can't say no. The coach, the tutor, the mentor that gives you the power to say no is what? Is the grace of God. You say, well, the grace of God? Yeah, let me explain the grace of God. It's the grace of God that teaches you to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-control, upright, godly lives in this present age. Why the grace of God? You say, I don't understand it. Some people allow judgment and hell and the law to scare them. But let me tell you, the fear of judgment will not teach you to say no. It'll help you temporarily to say no, but not long run. When you know there's a policeman on I-55, and you're going 80 miles an hour, because you got to make it to home group, <laughs> you got hey, you got a spiritual reason to go fast, and you're praying, oh, Jesus, shield me from the cops and the radars. I, I'm not sure he's listening to that prayer very well. You know, I, I don't know how Jesus feels about that prayer. So as soon as you see the cop car up in front, then suddenly your foot goes off the gas pedal. You want to put the brake on, but you don't want him to see you braking. And so your foot goes off, and suddenly you slow down to an acceptable 65 as you pass him, and you're looking in the rearview mirror to see if he's going to come after you. W what has caused you to go the, the speed limit? Is it... The fact that you believe in the law and society, you think it's good. You, no, 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 no. It's fear of a ticket. <laughs> the fear of a ticket makes you slow down. But if you can speed up and get away with it when there's no cop around, as soon as that cop has passed, you look around, you, you put your... You put your radar detector on your dashboard and then you speed up again in Jesus' name to make it to home group. And you're, you're going fast again. Why? The only time you slow down is fear that you're going to get caught. But if you can speed up without getting caught, you'll do it. If a man is afraid that, that he's going to get caught and he's a married man and he's kind of playing around and what, what keeps him from really playing around that much is he's afraid I'm going to get caught. And if I get caught, I don't want to sleep on the couch for several months, get kicked out. There's a, a fight. There's a lot of chaos in my house. I mean, it's, it's years in the doghouse for me. So, you know, I'm going to be very careful. If he thinks he can get away with it without being caught, he may go there because it's not it's not his heart that's leading him to be faithful and true. It's the fear of judgment. It's the fear of getting caught.
And that only lasts so long because we start deceiving ourselves and thinking we can do it without being, being caught. We can do it without the consequences. We can overeat and maybe the pounds will melt off. And we can, you know, we, we can, we can overdrink and, and, and maybe it's not going to really make us into alcoholics. And, and so it'll only last for so long, but then fear is not a, a deterrent that's strong enough. A deterrent that's stronger than fear is grace. Because what grace teaches us is that God is good. That God's plan, I can follow my plan, but ultimately it'll hurt me. It's less successful. It doesn't bring me the happiness, the fulfillment, and the joy of God's plan. The grace of God teaches me that God is for me, not against me. If God is for me, if he loves me, if he's got a plan, then I, in my heart, I want to follow his plan, not because I may get caught or not get caught, but because I love him and he loves me and I want to follow his plan because his plan is good and because I love him and desire him and he's shown me consistent and favor. Why would I take a secondary plan B, C, or D when his plan is the best, when I can trust him, when he's never failed me, when he has been good to me, where he has forgiven my sins, where he has washed away my iniquities, where he has granted me inheritance with the Father. Why would I take a second plan? It's the goodness of God. It's the grace of God that teaches me to say no to sin because ultimately it's him who I want to please, him who I want to live for. It's his grace that teaches me to say no. You live under the law, you try to white-knuckle yourself into obedience. I'm going to wear a rubber band, and every time I swear, I'm going to snap my wrist. <laughs> Maybe I'll stop swearing. Well, you have a, a bruised wrist, but you still got that dirty mouth. <laughs> it's when the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of grace... The spirit of love, the spirit of conviction comes in and floods in your heart and shows you how great the love of the Father is. Where you say, I want to please him because he loves me. I want to live for him because he's done so much for me. I want to honor him because his incredible mercy and grace has poured out to me. Why would I want to hurt him? Why would I want to disappoint him? Why would I want to live outside of his ways when his ways are the best, when his love is so incredible, when his power is so immense, when he's done so much for me? Ah, it's the difference between, it's the difference between it's the difference between living in a boarding house where they have rules and you just don't want to be caught or living with a loving father. That your greatest, your greatest fear is that the father would look at you and say, I'm disappointed in you because you're better than that. And you want to please him because he loves you. Not because he's going to beat you, but because you want to honor him and even when you're away from him, you think in your mind, 
how would my, what would my father think? I know he believes in me. I know he wants the best. I want to honor him. That's our relationship with God. And he sends the Holy Spirit inside of you to convict you, to empower you, to say no to sin, to say yes to God. And as you begin to live for God in godly ways, the Holy Spirit begins to build up your resistance to sin. So how do you, how do you strengthen yourself? You strengthen yourself by spending time with him in the word, by reading his word, by praise and worship, by coming to gatherings like this, because the stronger your spirit is, the more you're in touch with his love and his grace, then the greater power you have to say no to the things that keep people in bondage. Listen to me here. I close with this. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, he broke the chains of slavery to sin. You are no longer a slave to sin. You have the power to say no and to say yes to God and to live in freedom. I love what happened to St. Augustine, the the famous church father, St. Augustine. Do you know that before he became St. Augustine, so to speak, that he was a party animal? Gus the party animal, yeah, pretty much. He was a womanizer, he was a drunkard, he, he spent all his money, he caroused, and he lived a riotous, crazy life. And then he had an encounter with God that turned him around, and now we call him St. Augustine. But shortly after his conversion, he was walking down the street, and one of the women that he used to have flings with saw him on the street. As he walked down, she said, Augustine, Augustine, it's I, it is I. And he kept walking, ignoring her, and she shouted louder, Augustine, don't you recognize me? Hey, it is I, it is I. And the louder she got, the quicker he walked, and finally, without Breaking a stride, he turned to her as he walked away and said, yes, but it is not I anymore. What Augustine was saying is, is the old Augustine, he's gone. This is a new man in the image of Jesus, born again, new spirit of God. That old Augustine that you're calling, I don't know where he's at, but that's not me. That's the old man. There's a new man in Jesus Christ with the desire to do what's right, with the desire to walk in holiness. The old has gone and the new has come in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen.